justify prove to be right or reasonable justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification justify a podcast on law and politics in india from the vidhi center for legal policy hosted by orgo sen gupta Welcome to Justify a very happy new year to all my listeners. This episode of Justify is titled Sentinel on the Quivive. It looks at the role of the Supreme Court and the High Courts. What powers do they enjoy? What powers should they enjoy in India's constitutional setup? We have a very interesting tete-a-tete with Prashant Reddy who is the team lead of the judicial reforms team rechristened Jaldi at the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy but before that we have a very special roundup we are rounding up the five big cases from the Indian higher judiciary in 2019 It was a very exciting year to be a watcher of the Supreme Court in 2019 many landmark judgments and many controversies we leave the controversies aside for the moment and focus on the landmark judgments it was a tough task for our team of pranay modi and aditya bhattacharya to come up with four cases that would truly be representative of the court so we thought that a principle that we would use is to look at cases which deal with the power enjoyed by the supreme court itself first up is swiss ribbons versus union of india a case which is landmark all right but may have escaped your attention in this case the constitutional validity of the insolvency and bankruptcy code 2016 was challenged as most of you will know the ibc was enacted by parliament to consolidate insolvency laws in india the code was subsequently amended several times both in 2017 and 18 to make two significant changes first it barred promoters from filing resolution plans if the promoters were of the same company so vijay malya could not under the insolvency and bankruptcy code look to take over kingfisher again uh, and second it allowed for withdrawal of an application for insolvency resolution these two amendments together with various aspects of the code were challenged this in my view was a landmark judgment by justice rohinton nariman in the supreme court and it's important first for the powers of the court in respect of economic legislation the court held that economic laws will always lead to unanticipated crudities and inequities but the legislation itself cannot be held invalid on these grounds at the end of the day with all economic legislation there is a process of experimentation trial and error if courts are too ready to strike down economic legislation before it has settled down then we won't have too many economic legislations in this country so the court said that in matters of social and economic policy they must ordinarily defer to legislative judgment and the interference be restricted to cases of palpable arbitrariness we'll have to see whether this is a new standard but certainly it seems that the court will defer 
to parliament when it comes to the wisdom of economic legislation. This is very different from Justice Nariman's approach, say in the triple talaq case, where the court was far less differential in dealing with parliamentary legislation. Secondly, in terms of the nitty-gritties of the code, a key change that was marked by the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code was the fact that now the code would entirely be contingent on financial creditors. That is, the code put at its heart and soul financial creditors of a company. Earlier, the insolvency process, whether under the Sikh Industrial Companies Act or other legislations such as the Companies Act that existed, were very debtor friendly. So if you were in debt and were going insolvent, there were several procedures and substantive provisions that you had in order to get out. But the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code changed that and financial creditors were put at the heart and soul of the code. So the question that arose was whether the classification that the code made between financial creditors and operational creditors violated Article 14 because financial creditors alone were made part of a committee of creditors which would determine as to what would happen to the company. The court held that there is a intelligible differentia between financial and operational creditors. For the uninitiated, financial creditors are like banks and operational creditors are companies that a company deals with on an everyday basis. So if it has bought some supplies from somewhere, then that person who has supplied it is an operational creditor. The court said that there is a clear distinction between the two. So the fact that operational creditors do not have voting rights in the committee of creditors is valid in law. That's again an instance where the court differs to parliamentary wisdom on the subject. And it also held that withdrawal of insolvency applications would be permitted. This is something that the court itself had allowed before the amendment was made, exercising its residuary and inherent power under Article 142 of the Constitution. It recognized that this provision was Parliament incorporating a provision to reflect the judgment of the court. So it said that this would be allowed. The final question that arose was with regard to section 29A. Section 29A was an interesting section which prevented the promoters of the corporate debtor from filing a resolution plan. That is, if Vijay Malia as a separate entity wanted to file a resolution plan to take over Kingfisher, then this barred it. It also barred any connected persons from filing a resolution plan. The question was whether the connected persons being barred was invalid. And the court held that it the term connected party would have to be read down in relation to relative and related party. This was a very well accepted notion in law that connected parties and related parties cannot uh, do what the primary party cannot do. So it upheld this provision. Overall, it's a fine judgment which looks at the role of the court in economic legislation and urges deference. A very different point of view was taken 
in the case of in restubble burning now in restubble burning was a suomoto case taken up by the supreme court in response to the alarming levels of pollution in the city of new delhi uh this happened during the time when stubble is burnt in the adjoining areas of punjab haryana rajasthan and uttar pradesh causing an alarming spike in pollution levels in delhi this was a case which arose very interestingly out of a case in 1985 in 1985 mc mehta had filed a case regarding the enforcement of several provisions of environmental law in the country one of them in that case also included pollution in delhi caused by diesel buses operating in the city and there were several other questions over a period of time and the court has in this case using this device called a continuing mandamus kept this case alive now for a period of 34 years almost as old as i am kept this case alive and has continued to pass orders in various matters relating to environmental law now this in itself is an interesting innovation for the court um but frankly in my view hasn't achieved too many desirable results let's look at what the court did in inri stubble burning the tenor of the order of the court was reproachful because it hauled up the chief secretaries of the relevant states and said that there would be liability top to bottom including village panchayats if their dictat was not followed they also said that the widest publicity would have to be given by all means available to everybody that stubble should not be burnt it said that we are at a loss to understand why we are not able to create a situation in which this kind of pollution does not take place and that too in a routine manner every year and then it regrettably adopted an adverse stance against farmers and said that the farmers claimed that there wasn't sufficient time to use the stubble as manure between two sowing cycles could not hold the country to ransom now in my view given the fact that the court has intervened in this way every year every time around diwali in trying to reduce the air pollution in delhi is certainly welcome in terms of intent but the fact that it hasn't achieved the desirable results shows that this is not a question that is fit for judicial resolution whether there is enough time between two sowing cycles in order to uh, cut the stubble or to burn it is not a question that is fit for judicial resolution similarly are the means by which stubble can be disposed of without burning too expensive who funds it who does it reach these are all questions for governmental action now to the extent there is governmental inaction courts do and must haul up governments but it shouldn't try and substitute its judgment when this case ended its the government came to it and said that they were trying to look at some japanese technology in order to solve this problem i don't think there are magic bullet solutions to the pollution problem in delhi like many other problems we must first look within the third is the case of rafal 
Now in Rafal, which many of you might have forgotten given that events have overtaken it, but from the earlier part of the year, you'd remember that this was one of the key issues of the 2019 election cycle as to whether there was any corruption in procurement of Rafale aircraft from France. Now, the case, like many other cases of national importance, landed up in the Supreme Court. And in a striking departure from the air pollution case, the Supreme Court declined to interfere. There was a review petition that was filed where also it declined to interfere. Now, in this review petition, and I think it is quite revealing for what the court sees its role in questions of this nature, uh, Justice Call, uh, speaking for the bench, said that the review would be declined because a review petition cannot be an invitation to relitigate the dispute. While there were certain minor errors that had crept into the judgment, which is something that he admitted, that is confusing the companies RAL with RIL, but he said that that would not matter for the overall question of what the role of the court in procurement matters like this is. He said, we decline to once again embark on an elaborate exercise of analyzing each clause, producing what may be the different opinions, then taking a call whether a final decision should or should not have been taken in such technical matters. I think the court is right that it cannot scrutinize line by line every contract because then every second person might have a different view as to whether this was the best yet to procure, whether this could be procured at a lesser price. These simply are not questions for a constitutional court to answer. And while many people might feel that there still might have been some corruption in this or other procurement cases, then the answer to that lies in the ballot box and not on Bhagwanda's road. We can't let 2019 pass us by without reference to the Ayodhya judgment. We've spent a whole episode of Justify on it, so I won't dwell on it here. But this is the longest running controversy in the Indian judiciary. If you consider it started in the late 19th century before the courts in Faisabad. There was a petition in the Allahabad High Court in 1951. So we're really talking about the better part of a century, if not more. And in 2019, this matter finally came to an end with the Supreme Court ruling that the entire disputed property would go to the Hindus, but the Muslims would be given five acres within the municipal limits of Ayodhya. I know this is a bitterly contested judgment. We have a full episode on it. And I'm glad that the Supreme Court has finally heard this matter and disposed it off with a consensus judgment. Coming to a High Court case for this week. Now, the powers of the High Court are, in some sense, more powerful than the Supreme Court. Many of you might be wondering why, and that's because of Article 226 and 227 of the Constitution. Article 226 allows high courts to issue writs against any person or authority within its jurisdiction. Article 227 allows its supervisory jurisdiction over all courts in its territory. Now, it's clear from these two articles that in a state, the high court is boss. And Article 32 
also does not travel the jurisdiction of the High Court in any way. Article 32 is limited to the Supreme Court hearing fundamental rights cases. A question arose before the full bench of the Bombay High Court in Nagpur in Motilal Kamdeo Rokre versus Balkrishna Baliram Lokhande. And the question in this case was that is a writ petition for the quashing of an order passed by a lower court, that's a subordinate court, maintainable under Article 226? And if it is maintainable, does the judge who has passed the order have to be a necessary party? That is, does the judge have to come before the court? Now, some of you might think this is an absurd question. But it's actually quite interesting and there were many different views that were taken by benches of the Bombay High Court and even, as it turns out, the Supreme Court. In a very good judgment, the Nagpur bench of the Bombay High Court held that Article 226 does not apply to courts that are subordinate to the High Court. So the district courts in the state of Maharashtra, if they have passed orders, those orders cannot be challenged under Article 226. Article 226 is for quasi-judicial authorities, such as labor commissioners or employee employment cases or several other tribunals that might exist. Orders from those can be quashed by the High Court using a writ of certiorari under Article 226. As far as lower courts are concerned, the High Court can take up the matter in exercise of its supervisory jurisdiction under Article 227. Now, Article 227 too has a very interesting history because Article 227, if you read the provision, seems to make the High Court's administrative superiors to the lower courts rather than judicial ones. The judicial process is through the CPC and other statutes which provide for appeals to the High Court. But in a creative interpretation, Article 227 by a long series of judgments from the 1950s has been held to include judicial superintendents of lower courts. So under Article 227, if the judgment of a lower court is challenged, ordinarily, according to the Bombay High Court, no judge who has passed the order would have to come before the court. But if in that case the challenge is on the basis of malafide or bias or something which has to do with the mental element of the judge, then the judge may be called upon to give evidence because as the court says, human agency in such cases is a necessary condition. So Article 226 is not for the high courts vis-a-vis -vis lower courts. It's only for tribunals and other authorities. Article 227 is for the high courts and the lower courts, but judges don't ordinarily have to come to present evidence before the high court to defend the order they have passed. So let's always remember that the Supreme Court is really powerful, but our high courts are no less so. That is our roundup of 2019. Our deep dive today is actually quite a shallow dive. It's into Vidhi's work in the Jaldi mission, that's justice, access and lowering delays in India, to spread a culture of judicial reform in the country. Now, 
I'll be joined very soon in the tete-a-tete by Prashant Reddy, who leads this work. But in the deep dive, I'll give you a brief overview of what judicial reforms we think ought to mean. It's often understood as a case simply of judicial vacancies. Fill up the vacancies and the pendency in the courts will automatically dwindle. We think that's not the case. While filling up vacancies would certainly help, it needs a multifaceted and holistic solution. So what are the different prongs of the solution? In our report on open courts in the digital age, we seek to start a conversation around the creation of an open data policy in the Indian judiciary. We feel that if you need to have holistic and well-targeted reform measures, you must have data. And that data must be made available so that innovation, reform and change is possible. Second, we think that if our courts are to be accessible and genuinely accessible to the last person in the line, then it needs better infrastructure. We did a nationwide survey of 665 district courts in the country to understand the state of India's infrastructure. We found that while some states, Delhi, Chandigarh, Kerala, are doing rather well on the infrastructural metrics. There are several states, Bihar, Uttar Pradesh, West Bengal, which are faring really poorly. A shocking statistic is that 100 out of the 665 court complexes in the country don't have a single toilet for women. There is a long way to go. We think that transparency in the courts is an equally critical way to ensure that we have the judiciary we deserve. In our report on sunshine in the courts, we have ranked different high courts on their compliance with the RTI Act. We have four indices, that is the legality index, which assesses the legality of the high court rules vis-a-vis -vis the RTI Act, the convenience index, which assesses the extent to which the RTI rules framed by the Act make it inconvenient or convenient for citizens to file RTI applications, the practice index, which assesses the practices of public information officers of the high courts to respond to RTI applications, and the disclosure index, which assesses the quality of disclosures they make. As you can imagine, this was quite a gargantuan exercise and we found that Madras was the top performing court on the legality index, Patna on the convenience index, Delhi, Karnataka and Kerala on the practice index and on disclosure, it was Kerala, Punjab and Haryana. Gujarat and Chhattisgarh brought up the rear. Moving on to budgeting, we often hear that the reason why judicial reforms don't happen in the country is because there isn't enough budget. Therefore, we decided to evaluate the performance of the centrally sponsored scheme which funds the judiciary at the level of the district judiciary. And we found that the center and state governments share the responsibility of funding under this scheme and the total share of the center alone is 7,460 crores. 
Given the of this amount that has been released under the scheme, it is curious that the judiciary still does not have enough courtrooms to function at full strength. Against the sanctioned strength of 22,750 judges, the judiciary only has 15,042 courtrooms. 3,400 courtrooms function out of rented buildings. The shortage is an alarming 7,708 courtrooms. Finally, another magic bullet solution that has been proposed for filling up vacancies in the Indian judiciary is the All India Judicial Service. We believe that this is a solution in search of a problem. Like several other slogans, we currently don't know what it means. And if it means an All India exam in order to fill up vacancies, we only need to look at the UPSC and the number of vacancies that still exist there to know that perhaps this is an idea whose time has not yet come. My guest on Tete Tete today is my old friend Prashant Reddy, who leads the judicial reforms team as part of the Jaldi mission at the Vidhi Center. Welcome, Prashant. Thank you, Argo. Glad to be here. So you've worked quite extensively on judicial reforms in the past year and written about it for far longer. What do you think are the biggest problems of the justice system today? Now, I think the two biggest problems are first the lack of transparency because the judiciary is so closed off to the outside world it's very difficult to even figure out what is going wrong most of the times. The second uh, biggest problem I would say is lack of capacity within the judiciary that is running a system as, as large as the judiciary is in India requires a, a lot of skill and expertise which is just lacking within the judiciary and they very rarely reach out to outsiders for help in planning and budgeting. So explain this a little bit further because we've read in our civics class that we have a federal constitution with central government and state government but a unified judiciary. So is it one administration across the country or is it uh, various high courts running their own shows in various states? So we do have a single judiciary which was a very conscious choice that was made in the uh, during the Constituent Assembly debates. But we have what is a federated judicial administration. That is, each state, along with the High Court, is responsible for the lower judiciary in that particular state. So it involves uh, the state government coordinating with the High Court to plan for all the lower courts in each and every state. And uh, so the, the High Courts actually are the central uh, players in this because they take the uh, the lead on planning. They, they are required to plan and uh, send proposals to the state judiciary for them to budget. So the performance of the judiciary actually varies across states. Mm -hmm. Some states actually do perform pretty well on many indicators, such as vacancies, etc., uh, while other states are uh, poorly performed. But is capacity a problem across the board or is it a problem that's acute in some states only? Well, the shortage of judges and uh, even infrastructure-wise, it's, it's a big problem in a few states. So, for example, and it's the usual poor performers like Uttar Pradesh, Bihar. So, I think, I mean, we haven't done the study, but I'm sure states that rank low on general governance indices also rank low on capacity for uh, from a judicial perspective. So let's unpack the question of capacity. We've seen of late that there has been a significant movement to fill up judicial vacancies. 
or at least it's reported in the press quite often that we have such a shortage of judges that it's impossible for the justice system to perform. Is capacity only or primarily a question of vacancies and filling up vacancies or is it more than that? Well, I mean, one of the the uh, foundational problems in this regard is we actually don't even know how to calculate capacity. We've been debating this over the last 30, 40 years, and we are still yet to come down to a particular methodology. Uh, so some, some states, like for example, Maharashtra have less than I think one or two percent vacancies, that's it. Uh, the, the problem again with uh, a lot of states which are short on judges, it's also because they lack physical infrastructure. So there's a shortage of courtrooms in this country where even if you recruit all your judges, you may not have place to seat them in courtrooms. And currently a lot of states actually operate rented courtrooms. They're renting out courtrooms from private premises and putting in judges. Oh, really? There. Rented courtrooms? Yeah. I didn't know that this existed. I think there are at least a few thousand as per some data, one data set that we saw from the DOJ. So there is, I mean, if you don't have courtrooms, it becomes difficult to hire judges, right? So there are a lot of moving pieces over there which need to be uh, resolved in order to build capacity in the long term. But let's come back to the basic piece of how we calculate capacity. We know that we have a shortage of judges. I'm presuming on the basis of some estimation of how many judges we need. Do you think that that, accu that calculation is accurate or do you think we need to... Uh, rethink that yeah well I mean we're actually not very sure how they calculate we've asked uh, high courts this through RTIs and uh, even the government and they, nobody is quite clear so the, the methodology that has been used to say that we have short of judges is uh, the judge population ratio mm -hmm. that is how many this is I mean a metric used to calculate for example the police force etc but it's come under a lot of criticism because not everybody in a population goes to court. Uh, so uh, like more prosperous uh, cities, like for example, Delhi, tend to have more litigation because as there's mobility towards the middle class, people tend to enforce their rights more vigorously and approach court even in contractual disputes. So the population may not be a right metric. Which so is what is the right metric? The right metric is actually assessing the type of cases that we have and the amount of time that it takes to dispose these cases. We don't have that data, unfortunately. The amount of time it takes or the amount of time it should take? Uh, yeah, so there has, to be a, there has to be a metric on what is a time. For example, if there's, say, a property dispute involving 10 witnesses, we need to evolve some metric on how much time does it take to dispose such a case. So one proposal that has been floating around under the... Uh, national court management system is you have a unit wise uh, performance evaluation for district judges that is each case is broken up into certain units uh, so you use that as a metric because you're using it to assess the performance of a judge you can also use it to assess uh, the resource the, the time that is required for certain cases but this is a data intensive exercise and i don't think we have all of the data to do this uh, as well as we could do it. Uh, I was speaking to a judge recently and he was saying that if all the backlog 
in the Allahabad High Court on the criminal side had to be cleared, it would take till 2105. Now, I don't know whether that is right or wrong, but that is certainly staggering. Well, I mean, again, we, we just don't know what kinds of cases are there. For example, if they're criminal appeals, then yes, that 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 uh, the date that he gave may be accurate. But if a lot of these backlogs are, you know, for example, like uh, 482 petitions, the section 482 petitions on the CRPC, those are easy cases. They can be disposed in, le in less than two minutes of a case because it's completely discretionary relief. So we need to know what kinds of cases are pending. Okay, so let's come to the second part of what you said, which is about infrastructure. One of the key arguments that's made constantly is that the judiciary doesn't have enough money. You recently led a study on budgeting for courts, and you had some pretty interesting findings. Would you share it with us? Yes, well, I mean, the interesting finding was that the central government has actually been pumping in a lot of money uh, we estimate it's around 7,500 crores approximately. Over what uh, period? Well, the scheme, the centrally sponsored scheme for judicial infrastructure started in 1993, but the allocations were paltry until 2011 when it spiked to almost 500 crores a year. I think the average before that was 60 or 70 crores a year. So the central government started pumping in a huge amount of money through the centrally sponsored scheme. And there were other schemes like the Finance Commission gave a big grant for all states. But is that enough money? Because how do we know whether, I don't know, 7,400 crores is enough money or not? It sounds a lot, but I don't know whether it's enough. Well, uh, we can. the interesting thing is that a lot of the states which are entitled to this money are not even taking this money. Not taking the money? Yes, because there's an entire process uh, that you need to follow to get these funds from the government, from the central government. And this is a known fact across centrally sponsored schemes because we've seen other work in this area on the administrative side where states, some states lack the capacity, the administrative capacity uh, to actually utilize funds properly. But is it because they have to bear 40% and contribute 40% and that's the condition for release? Or is there some other reason as to why they are not able to take this funding? See, one part could be that. The other part is uh, they just, you have to coordinate with the high court state government. There's a lot of paperwork. You don't submit it in time. You don't get the money. So working through a streamlined procedure at the state government side itself is a huge task, which we suspect they're not completely up to. Like states like Rajasthan, Orissa, which definitely need courtrooms and they can use the money to you know, upgrade their existing infrastructure. They're getting paltry amounts of money under the scheme. So there is something that is going wrong and perhaps the, uh, uh, the paperwork that is required could be simplified. We haven't gone down to that much detail, but there's a lot of money and states are not using it effectively enough. You spoke about Rajasthan and Odisha, which need more courtrooms. Having courtrooms is one thing, but having good quality courtrooms is another. Uh, Vithi did a report recently, which I saw, which is talking about judicial infrastructure, which had some shocking numbers, including 100 district court complexes do not even have a toilet for women. Is this the picture across the board? 
Well, yes, I think except for a few exceptions in uh, Chandigarh and Delhi, the situation is bad. Uh, as our, you know, our report, Building Better Quotes, uh, along with, we've also designed a website which illustrates uh, the findings of our survey city district-wise across the country. It shows that judicial infrastructure has just been ignored over the years. There may be courtrooms that exist, but a lot of times the courtrooms will not have basic facilities, like you said, toilets. If they're toilets, the toilets may not have water. There may not be uh, seating capacity for litigants. So this was a survey that we did that was litigant-facing. That is, how a, whether a litigant has basic facilities available when they visit the courtroom. And the judiciary clearly is not doing a very good job of it. This is an ad-free podcast, but if there was ever to be an advertisement, then do check out our Jaldi portal on the Vidhi website. It's got some really incredible facts and figures and uh, quite alarming statistics on the state of judicial infrastructure in the country. That doesn't mean, of course, that all is lost. We Prashant will talk to us now about transparency, his favorite subject, uh, and a report that he's been leading on how we can make our courts more transparent. Prashant, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the conceptual linkage between transparency and judicial delays might be? Well, um, on the administrative side, uh, you need certain amount of transparency in just to figure out you know, how budgeting, etc. is happening. There's also another side of transparency, which is simple courtroom transparency. The moment you put a camera in a courtroom, uh, or even for, from a data perspective, if the judiciary were to actually release all of its data regarding, you know, from the from the e-courts project, it automatically injects a degree of transparency wherein judges are going to be held accountable for what exactly is going on with the judiciary. It's impossible to hold them accountable without that data. And I have a feeling once judges are held accountable across the board, it will automatically speed up the system. Because in this entire debate on judicial reforms, we are making the assumption that the judges are always working at optimum capacity uh, and are very efficient. That may not be true, but we need the data to substantiate that. So you mentioned an important point is that our judicial reforms discourse is based on many assumptions. And one of them seems to be that the reason why we don't have uh, quicker courts is primarily because of judges. As in it could be vacancies, it could be performance. But let's turn to the other side of the story, which is lawyers. One of the things that we found through our research is that lawyers are sometimes the biggest impediment for judicial reform. How do you think this problem of lawyers, be it asking for adjournments, going on strike, can be countered? Well, that's that's a million dollar question. Uh, I mean, the Indian bar is it's an extremely complicated organism to understand, given the number of lawyers across different states. I guess uh, we could start perhaps by thinking of reforms to the regulatory, current regulatory framework, because we've not changed the system since 1961, since the Advocates Act first came in. And perhaps we also need to have a check on the oversupply of lawyers to the legal market, because there is the, the Bar Council of India appears to have approved many, many uh, law colleges for, you know, in order for them to give their LLB degree. 
And if there are too many lawyers in the market, there's not enough, uh, there's not enough money for all of them to make. And that's where you see a lot of this discontent pouring out onto the streets. So we need to look at overhauling the, the entire regulatory framework put in place by the Bar Council. So the overall of the regulatory framework might solve one part of your problem, which is this demand supply mismatch that you've spoken of. But there's another part of the problem which seems far more cultural, that it's okay in the legal profession to ask for adjournments. Like perhaps in parliament now, it's become okay to disrupt parliament. Irrespective of the number of lawyers that there might be, how do we solve for this adjournments problem? Well, the adjournments problem is going to be solved only by tougher judges. Because one of the problems uh, with the Indian, the working of the Indian judicial system is that uh, the lawyers and the litigants get to set the pace of cases. And judges are very often criticized for being of passive third party observers. When they exactly, when they need to be doing the opposite, they need to be setting the agenda, setting rigorous timelines and ensuring that lawyers actually follow them. And perhaps if judges, one of the proposals put out there is for judges to have uh, disciplinary powers over lawyers. That is, if you know a lawyer is not performing, the judge should be able to sanction the lawyer, which we don't have. But isn't this all wishful thinking? Because judges were, after all, lawyers once. True, but if you've seen, there are a few decisions of late where uh, the Supreme Court has held that high courts can basically exercise some form of disciplinary power using their contempt powers. So if, I mean, lawyers misbehave, etc., they can be barred from practicing before certain courts. That does exist. Uh, but we also see there are great examples of here and there in the Delhi High Court and in other courts where one, when, a, when a judge is known to enforce his deadlines, lawyers do follow it up. So the question now is how do we incentivize judges to actually crack the whip and start sticking to proper timelines? Well, I just noted that a few days back, the Jammu and Kashmir High Court has issued contempt notices to a number of lawyers in the Jammu bench mm -hmm. uh, because they've just been holding up court from the 1st of November, refusing to allow people to come into the district court complex. So maybe that's a sign of things to come. Let's move to solutions. So these are many problems. These are seemingly intractable, but we must find a way because access to justice can't really wait for all our troubles to solve themselves. So if you were to give three top level solutions to the problems that plague us, what would they be? Well, one would be to use technology a lot better. Uh, so, for example, adopt an open data policy. We've done a report on that where because of digitization, the judiciary has so much data now, but they need to make it available. Uh, second, they need to adapt their systems, their uh, digital systems better so that other people can actively uh, integrate their programs into this. For example, like an Indian Kanun depends on scraping data of uh, the, uh, the websites of all these courts. And in the process, it's made available a lot more information to a lot more citizens. There, there's a lot, there are a lot more initiatives like that that can be launched if the judiciary takes an active uh, interest in coming up with a policy like this. And that could solve a lot of problems. Uh, the second I would say is we need to look at the issue of quality of 
judges who are being inducted, especially at the lower level, because we've we've done away with a practice requirement that traditionally used to be there, which means you have youngsters with no experience becoming judges, which may not be a good thing. And if you hire more experienced lawyers as judges, perhaps you will see better efficiencies and better quality of justice. Because in this entire debate, nobody's talking about the quality of justice. We're just looking in terms of numbers. And uh, the third, the third uh, reform measure, I would say, is the judiciary needs to start hiring uh, consultants or, you know, uh, depending on external capacity in order to augment its own functioning, because there is a massive bureaucracy within the judiciary, which uh, lacks the resources or the incentive to perform better. One way to fix this in the short term is to hire outside consultants like the government of India despite having more efficient bureaucrats, still relies on an army of consultants to execute and plan projects because they know that they don't, they lack the capacity within. And the judiciary perhaps should learn a few lessons uh, from the government on that comment. So last question from me, is the All India Judicial Service an answer to your second problem, which is on how to have better quality lower court judges. Suppose we fit in a practice requirement into that and create a cadre of career judges. Maybe it will solve the other problem about judges not acting against lawyers as well, because these judges will never have been lawyers. Uh, well, we, we've, we've done a report on the All India Judicial Services and we basically, we make a recommendation against that, against the service, because uh, we think that the hiring of district judges is best decentralized so that that allows each state to hire the kinds of judges that they require for their particular state because the judicial service is not like an administrative service an administrative service you're basically hiring top level managers who just who need to manage like requiring management skills is a very different game from requiring uh, from adjudicatory skills so we think that it is this is best left to individual states because as per the constitution and AIGS can be created only for district judges, not for the lower levels. And we don't think that the vacancy levels or even the uh, from a qualification requirement, there's much of a problem with district judges because district judges are coveted posts and uh, they're hiring usually experienced lawyers or promoting judges with a lot of experience at the at the lower levels. Uh, so I don't think there's such a big problem with uh, the district judge cadre across the country. And I don't think the AIDS is actually going to solve any particular problems on that count. Okay, but at least as I have a slightly different view on this, that at least people are talking solutions rather than talking about problems alone, because I think we have many problems, we have to diagnose them properly, but we also need to start talking and moving towards solutions because justice is really the business of us all. Thanks very much, Prashant, for joining me today. Thank you, Orko. Time for Clatter, our legal quiz that's a bit tougher than clat. Many of you had right answers from last week. No surprise, given that it wasn't really a legal question. The quote, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others, is from Animal Farm, and the author is George Orwell. Divya Dimri, 
is the winner of last week's quiz. Congratulations, Divya, for uh, an Amazon gift voucher comes your way. Our question for this week. Her father is the Attorney General of Guyana. She came into the news in the last three years, particularly in the last year, for being a person of Indian origin filing a landmark case. Who are we talking about? Send in your answers to justify at vidilegalpolicy.in. All right answers go into a pool and you stand to win an Amazon gift voucher. Thanks very much for joining us this week after our two-week hiatus. Look forward to seeing you next week. Adjourned. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at vidhi underscore India for regular updates. Follow us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast or any other podcast channel that you know to tune in to our next episode. Email us at justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode. We look forward to hearing from you.